Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. I want to read these together with you. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelites so that they turn and encamp before Piharoth, between Migdol and the sea, before Baal Zephon, which is opposite it, and you will camp by the sea. So Moses here is leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. They have just, let, they have just left Egypt. There were 10 plagues, miraculous plagues. These were plagues that, thanks so much. These were plagues that were so miraculous in nature. Every plague was a plague that was um, targeting one of the great gods of Egypt. And every one of these gods of Egypt, the god of the firstborn, the, the god of the Nile, all these different gods, these in which they were demons, actually, that were represented in these things that the Egyptians worshipped, every one of those ten plagues was directed at identifying that principality and power and then defeating it by, by a miraculous work. And then so Moses leads the children of Israel out of Israel, I mean out of Egypt, and they're on their way into the desert, and they come to a point where they're looking to God for the next step. And God speaks, Yahweh speaks to Moses and says, speak to the Israelites and tells them where to go geographically. And the place that he tells them to go is a place called Baal Zephon. Now, who remembers what Baal is? B-A-A-L. He's a god, right? He's a god. He's a demon. It's actually the, it's a very, uh, it's an old, um, it's an old word for Lord. And so God tells him, like, go to Baal Zephon, which is actually, could have been a mountain. It could have been an area. It could have been this place where they are now between the sea and this place, Baal Zephon. I want to make a point here. Zephon, historically, you guys like history, you like historical background? I like, I like biblical historical background where, yeah, some of you guys are nodding your head. I love history. I love to like, because I, I grew up, I went to church and you know, you read these words and you're like, I don't know what that means. But I think when you do some research, it's very amazing, very interesting. Baal Zephon is actually, um, is actually Lord Zephon. And Zephon was this, the god of the storm. It was this old Canaanite god. It was a storm god. And, and the Greeks adopted this god and called him Zeus. And this was a storm god. He would like throw bolts of lightning. Um, he, he had power over natural he had power over natural things. He could do supernatural things, supposedly, over natural things. And so here they are, the Israelites, they're coming down and they wind up next to the Red Sea. And they've actually, archaeologists have actually found this place. There is this place where it's kind of like this space right next to the, Black, the Red Sea that, that two million people could actually fit there and camp out. And so they're sitting next to the Red Sea and then in the distance, they see the, de- they see the dust of the coming Egyptians, and they're on their way. And yet, and so Pharaoh here is, in, is saying of the Israelites, verse 3, they are wandering around in the land. The desert has closed in on them. And I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. And this is what God is saying. I will harden the heart of Pharaoh, and he will chase after them. And I will be glorified through Pharaoh and through all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. And it was told to the king of Egypt in verse 5, and that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh was changed, and that of his servants toward the people. And they said, 
This is what we have done. What is this that we have done that we have released Israel from serving us? And he harnessed his chariot and took with him his people, verse 6. Verse 7 of chapter 14 of Exodus. And he took 600 select chariots. Now look at the numbers here, okay? These numbers are, these are numbers that, um, that show us that the Pharaoh takes the best of the best of Egypt. And he's, and he's on his way down to chase these Israelites. And all the chariots of Egypt and officers all over them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he chased after the Israelites. Now the Israelites were going out boldly. In verse 9, And the Egyptians chased after them, and they overtook them and camped at the sea. All the horses of the chariots of Pharaoh and his charioteers and his army at Pehiroth before Baal Zephon. So here's the Egyptians. They're on their way. They're, they're making their way down there. And Pharaoh approached, and the Israelites lifted their eyes. And there were the Egyptians traveling after them. This is a point that the Israelites, they were in Egypt. Why were they in Egypt? Because Abraham, um, centuries before, came, came down to Egypt for provisions. And, and his family began to grow there. And he became actually slaves. Uh, these Israelites became slaves of Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world system. It's a, it's a picture of the system that we live in. It's a system that, that promises freedom but only gives us slavery. It's a system, it's an economic system, it's a religious system, it's a political system, it's a social system, it is a, it is a health system. These are systems that, that are promise us things that are the Egyptian system, they only bring slavery in the system of, the system of entertainment, the system of stimulation of drugs or alcohol, the system of of, of um, relationships that just are just crazy relationships where people can dive into things and not and, and, and not worry about the conscience that would that would um, that would that would um, convict them. And yet that is never the case. And so these these Egyptians were promising the Israelites freedom. And yet they were in slavery and these slavery, these 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 guys were slaves and you know, what, you know what happens when you and I make a decision to be led by God out of our bondage? When you and I make decisions to be led by God out of our addictions? And, and I was talking to a guy last week, and he told me that God had delivered him from years and years of bondage to drugs. And he said, I don't even have the desire for it anymore. I remember uh, in our Bible college in, in Ukraine, we had guys coming from a part of Ukraine. That part of Ukraine... That city that they were from, it was in, in Ukrainian translated to English, is Crooked Horn. Krivoy Rog. We have a Russian speaker here, so she knows what that, that, that means. A Crooked Horn. And that was the name of the city. It sounds like a city in Texas, doesn't it? Crooked Horn. <laughs> and, it's, and so they came from this city, and they were all drug addicts. And you know what happened? God, in three days, delivered them from drugs. And it was just incredible because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And yet, you know what happens when you and I step out of the bondages that we have in the world the world's not going to just sit passively. It's going to come after you. There's going to be a space of time where you think, where we think that, okay, I'm good. But then something's going to, like maybe you're coming out of a very toxic relationship. Maybe you're coming out of something that just was mentally like depression or cycles of OCD or, or mental things that you struggle with. And you come out of that and you begin to learn about the grace and the freedom that's in Christ. 
you know what, Egypt is not going to, it's going to come after you. And you know what, God allows Egypt to come after us because he wants to defeat them before our eyes once and for all. And so the, the Israelites lifted up their eyes and there were the Egyptians traveling after them in verse 10. And they were afraid and the Israelites cried out to Yahweh and they said to Moses, verse 11, because there are no graves in Egypt. You know what's funny? Is that sometimes when there are problems in people's lives, people are just going to attack. They're going to attack the person they see. They're going to attack you. They're going to attack. They're going to they're going to come after whoever is representing God to them. You ever do that? Like, and so when someone comes at you and you feel like you're being attacked, just understand that this is not about you. This is really about their fears, their anxieties, and that they're that they are. This is not. This is nothing to do really with you. But you're just physically there present. And so the Israelites are saying in verse 11 to Moses, because there's no graves in Egypt, is that why you have taken us to die in the desert? What is this that you've done to us by bringing us out from Egypt? You know, I think sometimes we can forget so easily why God is doing what he's doing in our life. God sets us free from bondages, from fears, from ridiculous craziness in our life. And then we're, we, we begin to experience some 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 liberty, some freedom. And then what happens is, is that a situation comes up and then we realize something. And this is the first point. This is one of the points I want to make in the message here in a minute is that when God works in your life, he's working miraculously. God does nothing in your life naturally. The work of God in your life has nothing to do with natural things. And I want to talk about that in a minute. And because whatever God does miraculously, it requires miracles to sustain that thing. So if you're walking on the water in your life, if you're walking in liberty, are you walking with something that no person or not even yourself could give you? That is just you're walking on the water in your life. You've got peace. You've got joy. You've got, you've got love in your heart. And then a Red Sea. You find the Red Sea. And then you know what? God sends the Egyptians. You know why? Because God wants to do something more than just the Egyptians. He wants to do something so miraculous for the Egyptians that it just sends them in on their journey into, into the promised land. And so they're coming. They complain. I love it. Moses is like, you know, Moses said to the people, you must not be afraid, verse 13. I'm sure Moses was worried a little bit. Do you think Moses was worried about things a little bit? Do you think that, are you, a, are you, do you, do you run a business? Do you, do you, are you leading a family? Are you in some place of leadership in your life and things come against you and everybody's looking at you and you're just like, hey, don't be afraid. And you're inside of your, inside of you, you're just shaking in your shoes. You're like, God, please come through, you know, but you're not saying that. And Moses says to the people, you must not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord of Yahweh. And he will accomplish which he will accomplish for you today because the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you and you must be quiet. So there's seven things here I want to tell you this morning, seven things. And when the Bible tells us, when Moses tells us, when God speaks to us and says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still and see God's deliverance. Stand still and see God do something and do a miracle in your life stand still. And I think that's very hard for us to do because we're Americans. Americans are busy. We're just busy people. We just, and we live in a culture, we've created a worldwide culture of just busyness. Uh, we feel like if I'm not doing something, that I'm not being a responsible individual. 
Uh, if I'm not doing something, I feel like that nothing comes to those that do nothing. And I feel like, and especially in our culture, I think in Texas, Texas is a place, and I'm not originally from Texas, as you may know, but my, my um, observation is I love this state. I love living here. Um, I never want to leave the state ever again. <laughs> it's a great place to live. I enjoy it. Uh, there's so many things I do enjoy about it. I think one thing about Texas is, is that it's a, it's a state that, is, that has very hard work values, and it's a state that is very self-reliant, hence Lone Star State. And I think that can get us in trouble sometimes. It's a state where we believe that um, nothing comes to the person that doesn't work. We have to, there needs to be effort. And by the way, if I help someone, then I have the right to look down at them because they couldn't help themselves. And I think this is just, this is a mindset that is in our, in our mind. And we want, we want to be doing something. And the Lord says, in reality, there's nothing you can do. And I created this situation so there's nothing that you can do. Why? Because I, because number one, this is the first point, God's economy is an economy of grace. It's an economy of favor. Okay? That's the first thing. When you think about God, you know, if, if God was president of the United States, you know, his administration would be doing everything it could to implement the, the, the nature and the characteristic of God's mind of grace. And remember what grace is, right? Grace is a favor in our life that we could never, ever achieve or that we could ever, ever maintain. And it's something that we could never, ever deserve in our life. I come from a family of generations of just, achieve, just high achievers, people that achieve, that are high achievers. And, and I think it's because my, both of my sides of my family, they're immigrants. And when they came to America, they, they came to the States, really with, they left their possessions and their, and their, and their wealth much of it back in Europe. And when they came here, they just started, like, they were working in a dirty old factory in northern um, New York at a brush factory, making brushes, utility brushes. And you know something? This gets into our DNA. You know what I'm saying? Uh, this, this kind of pioneer attitude, this hard work, I can get it done, I can get it done, kind of, this is in your DNA. Because, you know, when you and I make decisions, and this can be proven biologically, the decisions that you and I make affect our DNA. It can, actually, it can actually change it in some ways. That means that there can be generations of poor decisions in your family in a certain area, and then when you get saved like you have and you begin to be a follower of Christ, then that, those decisions are no longer being made, and then, you have for, you know, and, and then you have broken that chain of generations of bad decisions or generations of... of and, and that can work on the other way, too. If you have someone in your family that is a prayer warrior or that serves the Lord or puts God first in their family and in every area of their life, that's going to affect generations. And it may actually skip a generation. The next generation, nothing may not really happen. But the generation after that, there could be, God could just do some great things in your family. And so God's economy is an economy of grace. All that God does is according to his favor on his people. So God releases the children of Israel from Egypt because of his grace. And the way he does it is does it in such a supernatural way that they could never do this themselves. This is Romans chapter 4, verse 16. It's the first point. Romans 4, verse 16 is that, is that this is why it has to be by grace that it may be by faith. This is why it has to be by faith that it may be by grace. It's talking about Abraham. One of my favorite verses 
is that for me to experience and to walk in the miraculous favor of God, I have to take steps of faith in my life. I have to come to church by faith. I have to come to church, be with the people of God, and, 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 and draw near. And I think we've created an online culture where people can just lay in their bed and watch, watch a, a service with no personal body life. And I think that church is more than just, is, is more than just watching something online. It's where you and I get to see each other's face. We get to have some interaction. You get to encourage me. I get to encourage you. I get to pray with you. I get, you get, we get to challenge each other in the word of God. And this is all the grace of God. I don't deserve to be in this group of people. This is a group of individuals that it's the grace of God that I get to be a part of. And this is the grace of God. And you know what's so amazing about grace? Is that it brings total, absolute glory to God. What gives God the most glory when you work for him? No. It's when he gets to give you something that you and I could never, ever acquire or ever, ever qualify for. You know? If you're married, just look at your spouse. <laughs> wow, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the grace of God in your life, right? If you're not married, that's the grace of God also. Things in your life and in my life that God gives to us that we could have never, ever achieved or ever, ever acquired in our life is a miracle. It's, 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 it's an act of God's grace. And that's what God did with the children of Israel. Number two, all that God does, and these are seven points. I didn't get these from somewhere. I didn't read them from a book. These are just things that God gave me as I was just kind of going through this work week. And my wife and I have been talking about it all week. And then Wednesday night, I talked a little bit about it also. All that God does and only what he does is an act of his goodness and grace. Everything that God does in your life has the agenda of doing one thing, and that is to be gracious to you and to show you his goodness. All that God's, and, and therefore, all that God does is miraculous by nature. Are you following me? If it's by grace, then it's miraculous. I think there's a, there's a trend now in Christianity where there's a lot of discussion about signs and wonders. I think signs and wonders are just the grace of God, like where, where God does something in our life that we could never, ever, ever do in our, own, in our own imagination, in our own power, and that's just miraculous. God's miraculous work in our life, and this is number two, still number two, is not a, is not a manipulation of natural circumstances. It's very important. It's not a, it's not a naturally created um, manipulation of natural human circumstances. For example, God, I pray that you would pay my electric bill this, this, this month, which is a good prayer. Lord, but we make our needs to known to the Lord. Or Lord, I, with the Hebrew boys, could have prayed, Lord, we pray that you would deliver us out of this furnace. That was not their prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 23 verse, through, 20, through 31. 4, 23 through 31 is a situation where the first church, Peter and the apostles are preaching. They get called and they get arrested by the authorities who threaten them, who threaten them and say, you cannot. And they, they just healed a man who was over 40, who could testify. And he was a legitimate witness. In Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, you see the church begin to pray. Oh, Lord, great. And, and I love this. Let's just read this together. I want to read this to you. Acts chapter 4. We've got time to read this, right? Yeah. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And it says this. And, and being let go, the apostles, Peter, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Bad news, right? This is bad news. This is, this is heavy news. This is something that's difficult. 
And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, listen to this prayer. Okay, listen to this prayer. This is an awesome prayer. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. I love that's how the prayer starts. God, you are God. You are Lord over all. You've created this world, earth and sea and all that is in them. Verse 25, who by the mouth of your servant, David, had said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in verse 27, against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Do to do whatever your hand, in verse 30 and 28, and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants what? Freedom. Get us out of the situation. No. Give us boldness. Give us boldness. Um, that they may speak your word. Wow. That is the perspective of prayer in difficult times. It's like it's not like Moses, hey, why did you bring us out here to die? Because that's the first thing we think. We go from miracle, from miracle to miracle. And between point A and point B, there's, there's a place there of death. There's a place where we have to die to our natural understanding of the circumstances and not complain to Moses and not complain to each other and not live in negativity and, not, and really be careful of how we talk about things. Don't let negativity come out of your mouth. Guard your mouth the way you talk. Don't speak negatively. Don't, don't cry out like, Lord, are you, have you just brought us here so that we could die, so that we could be embarrassed by this situation? And, and what happens here? The, the, the first church is, is saying here, Lord, give us boldness that we could speak your word. Give us boldness that we can speak your word, that we can speak of your promises and your testimonies and everything that, and as they were praying in verse 31, and I like this, verse 31, message we could preach one day sometime. Verse 31 is this, is that when they had prayed, the place was shaken. It was shaken. It was shaking. Why is that, why is that important? Because sometimes when we pray for a revival, sometimes we pray for God to work in mighty ways. Sometimes we ask God to do the miraculous. Lord, we pray that our church would grow. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would heal this person from, from addiction, Lord. We pray, and we're praying these things, and guess what happens? It, the signature of the work of God in your life and my life is shaking. When everything starts to vibrate. You know, when my, when, when my dad got saved, we were a middle-class American family doing really well. My dad was in sales. He was just doing great. He got saved and all, I mean, everything just fell apart. I don't know. He lost his job. This happened. That happened. We lost our house. We were just, you know, and we just had no idea what was going on. But my dad just got saved. When we come out of the bondage of Egypt, when we come out of these things that try to grapple onto our life, um, there's going to be a shaking. And that shaking is not because God has forsaken us. It's because God wants to, re, wants to rebuild everything. He wants to create a new foundation. This is number three. Only God's miracles and supernatural answers can sustain our miraculous life of faith by those things that are given to us by grace. Only God's miracles can be sustained by God's miracle. Only God's graciousness can sustain those gracious things he's given to us. If you got married by this amazing miracle of God's grace... 
it's going to only take a miracle and grace to stay married. Does that make sense? So if somebody has marital problems, it's not a, that's not a negative thing. Actually, shaking means we get a chance to deal with some foundational issues. So like sometimes people struggle. And by the way, every marriage has issues. Every marriage, every marriage will have times when it's just like shaking and you're just like, I don't know what's going to happen here. But you know what God does? He does that so he can rebuild a new foundation and, and never feel bad. Don't judge yourself and don't let other people judge you if you're going through some transitions in your relationships. You know, if you're not married or you were married and you're not now, then there's no condemnation. Don't live in this projection that the world projects on you. You got to be married to be successful. You know what I'm saying? Don't live in that. Don't live in that at all. That's the world system and don't live under that. Only God's miracles and his supernatural answers in your life can sustain our miraculous life. Israelites come out of Egypt, miracle. They're in the desert. Now they need to get to the promised land and only a miracle can get them there. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is number four. Anytime we try to use, and that's, this, is, this is what we're reading here, Exodus 14, 13 through 14. Number four, anytime we try to use the means of the world, its philosophy of cause and effect, or work hard to get equal compensation, or any other form of a human natural proposition, we are functioning in the world system, which is functioning under a curse, because it is, because it lies passively in opposition to God. That's 1 John 5, verse 19. Anytime you and I are in a place like the Red Sea, Egyptians are coming, we're dead meat in a few minutes, what do I got to do? Okay, well, maybe we can do this. Maybe we can do that. Maybe we can do this. Maybe we can do that. I remember, and when we do that, we're functioning in blindness. We don't, because we need a miracle to get us to the place of the miracle. Does that make sense? I remember when um, in Ukraine, we were living in Ukraine, and God miraculously gave us a building. There was a building there in, a, in the part of um, the city that we're in, Lviv. It was the old Jewish ghetto. And it was where the Jews were rounded up by the Nazis. That ghetto was, was um, cordoned off, and all the Jews were just packed into this part of that town. And a very dark place. A lot of Jews lost their lives there. They, from there, there was a train that came in and shipped them off to Auschwitz and other camps like that. Where they, where, where they died. And we have a lady that's in our church in Ukraine that remembers that. She's an elderly woman now. And um, when we were living there as missionaries in Ukraine, nobody could own anything at that time. It was just really difficult. And we had a businessman come and say to us, the guy that we had led to Christ, just out of the blue, we didn't solicit this. He just said to, he said to us, um, he said, the Lord has done so much in my life. He's given me all this grace in this business and because there was some Jews that were living in that city of Lviv and they moved back to Israel and they were business, very successful business people and they gave this guy all of, his, all of their contacts. And so God really blessed him and he was afraid. He was like, God has really blessed me and I, I wanna just, I wanna, I wanna bless the church. And so he, says, I want to buy a building for you guys. I want to help buy something for you. And he did. He got a building right in the middle of the Jewish ghetto, um, just in a very hard part of town. Um, it was, remember the building cost at that time, $33,000. And then in, in a matter of six years, the price went up to, it's, it was valued at $1 million. It was just a building right in, the, in, in a beautiful part of town, very historic. And I remember in the, in the late 90s, 
um, he had financed part of the building with a bank, and that bank, in the late 90s, they went through like a crisis in their, in their, in their stock market. And the bank called the loan. They said, in one weekend, we need, we need you to pay the rest of this, uh, what you owe on this. And it was just a small amount of money, but we didn't have it. And I remember getting a phone call from this guy saying, you know, like by Monday, and I think it was Thursday or Friday, he said, by Monday, we need, we need, um, uh, we need, we need, we need $18,000. And, and I was like, I was like, you know, I didn't have like a thousand dollars to buy a laptop. I mean, I just, everything that we owned was just, we were so like, it was such the grace of God. And I was praying, I talked to my wife and the Lord said, don't do anything. Don't try to do anything. Just wait. Pray, the, pray through the weekend. Monday morning, I'm going to tell you what to do. I was like, okay. And we prayed. You know, we prayed through Sunday. And then Monday morning, I woke up. And the Lord put two names on my mind. Two names of people that had been involved in our ministry in the past. And he said, just call them. And just tell them what's happening. And don't even ask them for money. Just say, ask for prayer. And one of them had bought a laptop for us. Another one had one time given us a gift. He was a businessman up in Canada. And the other one was a businessman that was down in, um, in Florida. And so I called them. And um, one of them said, um, this is so interesting you're calling me this moment because I'm sitting in my um, financial advisor's office trying to discuss, trying to, do, trying to figure out what we're going to do with this sudden inheritance that I had gotten from a family member that we didn't really know much about, but died and left us this huge inheritance. I was like, oh my gosh. I said, okay, pray for us, please. And he says, okay, call me back. And then I called this other guy up in Canada. He didn't speak English. And uh, his secretary answered, and he said, and she, and she said um, what, what's the need? And I said, well, totally, it's 18, um, but we may have someone that may give towards it. And he said, whatever is not there, he'll give the rest. And so by Monday afternoon, we had every penny we needed. That was just like, because when God gives something uh, and then the world, the world system says, you've got to pay us back right now, because it was a miracle, there's no way that we can naturally sustain that. Does that make sense? And so when we live by God's miracles, by God's grace, things are going to come where we're backed up against the, black, with the Red Sea. And we're thinking the Red Sea is a wall, but it's not. It's a sea. And God has another plan that's so big that it's not even entered into the mind of the Israelites. It's never happened. And so whenever we try to use the means of the world, it's philosophy and cause and effect. We're functioning, we're drawing off of something that's under a curse in 1 John 5, verse 19. It's like it's the like world says, hey, you know what? I'll help you out. Okay, I'll give you something. This is what I'm going to give you. But I'm going to make you, you're, I'm going to make you feel so demeaned. You're going to be a piece of bread. If you've ever applied for a mortgage, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, like you just make you feel like just you're the worst person on the planet. Like you're a beggar. You're like, please give me a mortgage for this loan. And it's like, you know, and the world system will make you feel like a piece of bread. It will be so demeaning because there's no grace in the world system. There's no grace. Nothing comes, for, nothing comes for free. There's always an attachment. And whenever we lean on the world and we say, you know what, I can do this. I can make it happen. Then we're going to be drawing from something that's going to break and it's going to fall apart. Number, number five, um, there's an awkward vulnerability that we experience as we discover our desperate need for his favor in our bankruptcy, in our brokenness. 
You ever, you ever like go to God and just like, God, you know, here we are at the Red Sea and I don't know what we're going to do. And you just feel, and you say this, you say this to your wife or a friend or a family member and you say, you know what? I'm really just trusting God here. I don't know what to do. That's not a great feeling, is it? It's, it's like, it's a little bit like awkward, like, oh, I wish. And people, other Christians may look at you and say, well, there you're in that situation because maybe some bad decisions are made or. Yeah, and there could be bad decisions that a person makes in their life because we're not perfect people. We are going to err. We're going to make decisions that are not the best decisions because we, we're just human beings. And we may be in a place where, where someone says, well, if you had done it this way, you wouldn't be in this situation. And that's all just nonsense, okay? That's like, maybe that's true. But the point is, is that God is gracious to us when we're doing great and God is do- gracious to us when we're not doing great. Because God's grace is never given to us because we deserved it. Because we, and God's grace never puts us in debt. God's grace never puts us in a place where you better pay me back. Or, or grace, never, get, grace is never given to somebody because they're, they're a great person. Grace is given, and the glory of his grace is the most beautiful thing. To the most broken piece, it becomes the most beautiful thing. Grace, what it does is, it's like a river. It's like a flood. It goes into the deepest crevices and the corners, and it fills all of those black places up. Before, before it starts to rise. And when it gets to the ground, when you see it on the ground, that means everything underneath the ground has already been filled up with that water. That's what grace does in our lives. Grace is filling in the crevice. Sorry. It's, filling in the, um, it's filling in those broken places. It's, it's filling in these places that, that, are, that nobody can see. And then when, we get, when, when the water starts to rise above the water, uh, above the, of the land, then it's a picture of how God's grace has totally saturated us. And there's a sense of just awkward vulnerability, like, yes, I'm in need. I'm in need. One person said it this way. The only way, the only thing that you need to experience God's grace in your life is need. That's all you need is need. And if you have need, then you can experience. And that's 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Paul was experiencing that. When you feel awkward and God has to do a miracle and you're standing there, maybe the Israelites were thinking, I wish we could fight. We could protect ourselves. We could defend our families. And yet... And yet that was not God's plan. Number six, when we, we have to be aware that when we choose to walk in God's favor of grace and our hearts are being established in grace, we're going to be targets of warfare. And that's Hebrews 13, verse 9, when, when the writer of Hebrews said, let your heart be established in the favor of God. Just get it, let it, let your heart. And the heart is that part of us where every root of our soul is just rooted into the heart. And where our heart is, and the condition of our heart is going to be the condition of our soul because that's the soil of our soul. It's the soil of our life. And if our heart is established in the favor of God, so you know what? The Lord is going to be favorable to me. The Lord is going to be favorable. He's going to be good. In Proverbs chapter in Psalm 16, I believe I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And when we think that way, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be warfare in your life. Why warfare? Why is there going to be any warfare in your life when you receive grace? Let's go back and remember, what does grace do for God? It, what does it do? It, remember, it glorifies God, doesn't it? Because it's the giver and the receiver is doing nothing. When God gives you grace, it glorifies him the greatest. And, get, and guess what happens? The devil gets angry because God's getting glorified in your life. You know, the Israelites were told, you will go into the cities in the promised land. You will live in homes that you did not build. You will... You will, you will um, you will harvest crops that you did not plant. You will have a whole life that you never even created, and it's been handed to you 
because of God's graciousness. And why does the enemy hate that? Because the enemy's system is a system that's based on work. Work and get. Work and get. Work and get. And the believer is, the disciples in their Jewish religious mind ask Jesus in John chapter 6, what must we do to do the works of God? And what's the answer? What's the answer? What must we do to do the work of God? What was the answer that Jesus gave them? That you would what? Believe on him who he, God has sent. I love that sentence. God, what do you want me to do? Just trust me. I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to trust me. Just trust me. I will raise up what is needed. Trust me. And you know what? The devil hates that. And, and, and people, people and, and the devil and circumstances are going to come against us. And they're going to say stuff. Because you know what? You're, you're living in something that you never could have ever qualified for. You have joy. You have righteousness. You have peace. You have forgiveness with God that you could have never, ever worked for. But Jesus gave it to you through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, his blood that was poured out. This was given to us. This is the grace of God. And in closing, the only way of overcoming, and this is the main point here I want to make, the only way of overcoming is that we would still ourselves before the great God, Yahweh. Just get quiet before God. Just get alone with God. Just get quiet. Just late, get, just be quiet before the Lord. And, and just, uh, just maybe not even try to give him all these prayer requests, but just be alone before the Lord and say, Lord, this is what is needed. This is, what, this is the pressure that, uh, that I'm living under. This is what the situation is. And I'm going to be alone and I'm going to be quiet. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy tabernacle. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's such a majestic verse. I love that. Just be quiet before the Lord. Just get on your face before his majesty, his holiness. Get on your face before his mighty acts and his mighty miracles. Get on your face before not the American system. Work hard and get it. Because you know what? That brings pride. That brings pride. If, I, if I've done it and I... It, and, and, and somebody wants to touch it, that, that is pride. But when it's all grace, it's all a gift, it's all joy, there's light, there's joy there. It's, it's relaxed because it's not a system that I'm trying to carry, that I'm trying to maintain. Are, do you get it? Uh, and it's just something that I'm, I'm you know, it's something I've been meditating on these last couple of weeks is that when the Lord gives, he wants to maintain it. And the only way to overcome the flesh, the devil, and the world is that we get quiet before the great God of that we get quiet before the cross, that we lay all of our stuff, all of our accusations, judgments and fears and depressions and sins and memories and everything that people's doing against us and what's not right and what needs to happen, I lay it at the cross and I say, Lord, it's crucified. I only want to live in your presence. One thing that's beautiful about the Hebrew language, and I want us to turn to Deuteronomy 28. I'm going to read this and we're going to close. Deuteronomy 28, verse 13. It's a beautiful verse, 28, verse 13. And this is a this is a verse that just came to my mind. And I'm going to read it to you from a direct, a direct translation from the Hebrew. It's a beautiful verse. And be, be thinking of this when I read this, that in the Hebrew grammar, um, words are not used like never or always. It's always present. When God says something, he's talking in the present tense. There's, there's never this... There's never this thing like that we would think in a linear way. It's always about God's presence this moment. And think of this word here in Deuteronomy 28, verse 13. It says this, And Yahweh shall make you as a head and not the tail. 
and you shall be only at the top of the nations, and you shall not be at the bottom. If you listen to the commandments of Yahweh your God that I'm commanding to you today and diligently observe them. Where do you see the word do in there? You don't. You don't see the word do, you see observe. The Hebrew concept of obedience was the same word that was used for the word for hearing. To hear, like if an, for, for a Hebrew, to, the word hearing meant that they were giving attention to, they were giving heed to, they were giving focus, and that was what they would eventually wind up be doing. Just listen. I'm going to close with this. Just listen to God. Just listen to God. Open your Bible. Get on your knees. Listen to the, what, the word. Listen to the promises of God. Listen to God. Because as you and I listen, as we're listening, we're going to start doing what we're listening to. You and I are always going to do the thing that we give heed to. There's never a thing in my mind, well, I can do this in my mind, but, never, but then do this in my activity. That kind of hypocrisy doesn't last very long. And then eventually I'm going to go after what my heart is looking at. And if my heart is established in the grace of God, I'm going to be chasing the favor of God. I'm going to be walking in the favor of God. Amen? Observe and just observe the great favor of God in your life. Maybe there's something in your life this week that is just, or this month or this year that's just causing a lot of pressure. You feel like your back is against the Red Sea. Um, God says, you know, I'm just going to open the Red Sea. <laughs> I'm just going to do something that's never been done in history. Moses raises his rod. It's not hocus-pocus or anything like that. It's, and the sea splits, and they go across. Let's look to God in stillness and not live under these false expectations, these concepts, these ideals that are not even biblical. Don't, don't live under expectations for yourself that you, that you think you need to be something that God has never asked you to be. Just be who you are. And I like this one time it was defined by our pastor back home, he says, we're, not, we're human beings, not human doers. We're human beings. I think we're human beings, so just be in the favor of God. Just be in the grace of God. And just function in that. And just understand that you and I are, are favored by the Lord because, because we're the head and we're not the tail. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And don't settle for what the world is saying. You know what? You don't deserve that. You deserve this. And you know what? When the, when the world says you don't deserve level A, you des- level 10, you deserve level 7. I say I deserve level 0. That's what I deserve in this world system. Like, I don't deserve anything. I don't qualify for anything. Big, big 0. And when we live at that 0, that's when we can experience the maximum grace and the favor of God. Amen? We're not striving. We're not trying to be something. We're not trying to be all that we can be. We're not trying to be more intentional in our Christianity. We're just being who we are in Christ. Amen?